Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food. And this week I'm with cook, gardener and beekeeper, Amy Newsom. When I was testing this recipe, I was working in Kew's Palm House. It's quite surreal because you're working in somewhere where they're growing fresh cardamom in the soil and, you know, all other, because uh, cardamom is a relative in the ginger family. So you're learning not only about the sort of like colonial history of the movement of spices and how to horticulturally grow them yourself. I was then also downstairs in the secret basement of the Palm House, which is where the staff kitchen is for us to hang out on break time, cooking up a cardamom bash cheesecake. Her book, Honey, Recipes from a Beekeeper's Kitchen, takes us through the beekeeper's year, arguing the case for less but better honey from inside the beehive. Her holistic approach takes us from terroir to table via a garden designed for bees. As she explained when I asked her how her three jobs became one. First of all, I never intended to do all three at exactly the same time, because obviously that might be a recipe for madness. <laughs> but I think it, one thing led to another, which always happens for me. I go down multiple rabbit holes of getting really interested in things and uh, just can't help myself. But I particularly found with being able to do essentially what is three stages of what you might term bloom to plate in terms of I I do the active gardening growing the plants and then the beekeeping um, looking after bees that that make honey from the plants and then moving into the kitchen taking that honey into the kitchen so actually for me being involved in all stages of that process is really uh, inspirational and I find it really creative because I might be in the garden working with certain plants and think ah actually I'd really like to use this in that kind of salad in the kitchen or I just sort of make associations that I don't think I would have otherwise so I find actually they all enrich each other and they're all for me what was quite important because I changed careers out of a sort of city office job mostly for my mental health. And what's important for me is that all three of them are physical in their creativity. So you have to get your hands dirty. You have to be in the moment. And that I find is uh, really beneficial for sort of improving mood as well. I absolutely love that. It's normally lawyers turned chefs. I mean, the amount of lawyers who turn into chefs or nutritionists because they get burnt out. Tell me, is that your story? Did you get burnt out? Yeah, I, uh, well, yes, definitely burnt out. Although I have to say, I wish I had been a lawyer that had become a cook because I probably would have had more mon- money behind me if I did. <laughs> but no, I so I changed careers uh, really early. So actually, it was a really big thing. And I think people don't talk about this enough when you decide to change careers at a point where you haven't necessarily got any kind of financial backing or somebody else to help pay a mortgage whilst you make that ginormous leap and so it was a it was a really stressful risk but I just knew that I had to do it and I was um, working in the city actually working for a luxury fashion brand Um, but it wasn't something that I'd sort of always set out to do I kind of just landed in the position it was actually quite corporate and I just found particularly in winter, I was only seeing daylight in on the weekend, essentially, and actually not seeing the outdoors or the seasons change, because you're just going from standard flat to tube to office and back again. Um, and I kind of decided that something needed to change, and I couldn't stare at a screen all day. And then I started growing fruit and veg in my back garden in London, really scrappily in tiny pots. And just it just blew my mind as to how the, the levels of satisfaction that you can get growing, um, you know, something quick like lettuces that grow super fast and then suddenly you've made your own dinner. And it doesn't matter how you felt about your day at work in the job that 
wasn't for you and where your mental health state was at the time, you could come back and go, I did that. That's amazing. And I can eat that for dinner. And it was just transformative. And that was about seven or eight years ago. And then I decided to really make the shift. And so I, I moved back in with my parents in order to even be able to do that, to retrain. Um, and I was lucky to be able to do so. And then worked in several large gardens, including volunteering at Raymond Blanc's Le Manoir at Catsazon in Oxfordshire. And then beekeeping and gardening in the kitchen garden at Soho Farmhouse. And then I decided to retrain at Kew Gardens and really just go for it. Um, so four years working full time at Kew Gardens in all the areas, the tropical palm house, absolutely everywhere. Amazing. And then, yeah, since then, I've been doing a combination of garden, garden design, beekeeping. Um, and then the cooking has been a running theme throughout. Yeah. Learning to be the bee queen. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's so many things I could say about it. <laughs> Less doing, more being. Excellent. I mean, tell me about Raymond Blanc. I've interviewed him about his trees. He's, he's so fantastically passionate about sustainability in all its forms. Take us into a moment with Raymond and his, he does bee hotels as well, doesn't he? Yeah. And I think kind of one of the big things that I took away from um, having the privilege to, you know, learn and do kitchen gardening and at Le Manoir, Raymond's uh, hotel and restaurant, was that they are so, as you can imagine, that they are so focused on growing for flavour. So we would do uh, prior to... um, the current menu that's on we would always be prepping ahead for the next menu so we would be flavor trialing you know multiple uh, cultivars of butternut squash or uh, spinach and then you know five or six of those would would go into the kitchen they would get cooked a variety of different ways and then we would be there with the chefs kind of flavor testing them and scoring them out of 10 and figuring out which is the tastiest to grow for the menu the following season. And he's so passionate about that. And it's been running for so many years now that it's just the most slick operation. You, know, The kitchen will know in the morning that they need 71 bay leaves today kind of thing. Yeah. It was absolutely amazing. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was really wonderful to... Uh, work somewhere where the quality of what you were doing was so clearly appreciated and loved and and that time spent with frozen fingers picking uh, baby leaves early in the morning at exactly the right size like it was all so appreciated and and well respected it was yeah amazing experience and was that where you learned about the importance of terroir in honeys and the different flavors I mean I love the way that you talk about the different flavors just through the seasons and it makes so much sense but Mm. you know did you learn that at Le Manoir? That actually came later more directly through my beekeeping training and um, having the opportunity to work a little bit with um, Sarah Wyndham Lewis, who's a honey sommelier. Who's been on the show very recently. Yeah, amazing. Mm. And um, yeah, Sarah's amazing. And she is, uh, I think the role of a honey sommelier is is absolutely brilliant. There's a a, a great training that you can do in in Italy for it. And it was really kind of around that time that I realize just the breadth of both the breadth of flavors in honey but that it really deserved to be seen on that level with wine and like I'm not going to lie when I talk about sort of honey terroir I can't help feeling like I'm being a little bit snobby and it's a bit of a ridiculous phrase to be using but actually it is really true because it's exactly like wine if not even more so than wine um 
honey is the exact expression of the flavor of the landscape around mm. the beehives, especially if it's not a blended honey. So it's just a very, very um, effective way of understanding the breadth of flavor that's out there and the possibilities that are out there with it. But unfortunately, um, it's very difficult to find sometimes. The supermarkets are getting a little bit better at stocking wider ranges of flavors, but it's still quite challenging. Well, we'll talk a little bit about the supermarkets just to remind people about the hideousness of the of the honey industry. Um, but before we do that, just paint us a picture of what happens to the bee. Why does the flavour of honeys change from season to season from in the difference between sort of summer and late autumn? The honey itself is flower nectar that the bees have collected and then they've, com- they've converted it into honey. And it will always, if it's good honey and hasn't been overly processed and blended and microfiltered and heated and all of the things it will taste of that landscape because the flower nectar of every plant tastes different. Um, It sort of has like a unique signature, its own perfume, if you like. And so bees will um, collect flower nectar from flowering plants growing within a sort of one to three mile radius of their hive. And that's what they're bringing back and converting into honey. So it really will taste of that area. And then bees are foraging right from sort of any time that the air temperature is about sort of 13 degrees centigrade. So that can be right through depending on the weather that we have from sort of early spring right up until sometimes winter because obviously our winters are getting warmer. So whatever's blossoming in springtime or for instance now as we record there's loads of bramble blossoming ready for blackberries. So bramble honey will be coming through at the moment in the honey flow and um but when you go right through into autumn then you're going to have a completely different set of flowers flowering and to your point also the flavors will change year on year a bit like wine in the sense of those weather conditions so if you've had like for instance this spring was actually a very uh difficult spring for beekeepers and bees because it was long and cold but now actually they're turning into having an absolutely brilliant summer because all of the flowers going absolutely nuts after being held up so long by the spring so Whereas that might be different next year. So you get year on year variation in terms of what's flowering. And then also climatically, we're, we're having changes because of obviously climate change and global warming. So um, our, as our landscapes change and our climate changes, so does our honey. I mean, for, for example, you say a spring English honey might be pale, gold and creamy thanks to bramble and hawthorn blossom, while in autumn it may be dark, runny and rich, reflecting plants like ivy and rosebay, willow herb. I'm rather pleased about the ivy, actually. We've got loads of ivy over our flat and that bloke upstairs wants us to get rid of it all. So I'm just going to read that out to him. <laughs> Keep the ivy. <laughs> Tell us about the supermarkets. So, you know, make the case why we should all be getting on our beacon Keepers Association um, website, finding the Facebook groups, supporting our local beekeepers and never, ever, ever buying blends of EU and non-EU honey. Yeah, at the moment, it's um, fortunately until we can get better regulation on how our honey is made and how it is labelled. The the, uh, brands of honeys that you're going to the supermarket supermarket and um, just sort of unthinkingly pick off the shelf the cheapest ones that don't usually say what kind of honey they are sort of whether there's a particular blossom flavor unfortunately they don't even say what country they're from at the moment it's really not a good idea to buy those kinds of honey and it's really unfortunate that in our minds sort of we can call that honey and people associate that with honey because it's so far removed from the actual um, like a like just any kind of good honey so 
And that's one thing that I've really learned as a beekeeper is when you do your first harvest of honey, it just blows your mind because it is so it's a world apart from the stuff you'll buy on the shelf, which frankly has got a lot more common with golden syrup than it does with honey because it's been heated, because it's been microfiltered and overblended. And so at the moment, although um, although we are campaigning for better regulation um, on labeling and provenance and also just the processing of honey. Um, that's probably going to take a while to come in, unfortunately. And with the recent studies um, done, which were all over the newspapers a few weeks ago, with um, the EU testing honeys from all over Europe, and they tested UK honeys, unfortunately, all of the honeys tested were adulterated, which is absolutely shocking. So it is actually quite likely that those cheap uh, jars of sort of not minimally labeled honey that you'll pick up in the supermarket might have corn syrup or sugar syrup in them. Uh, They won't be pure honey necessarily. And that's a really sad state of affairs. So in the meantime, until we can improve what you can buy on your supermarket shelves, we need to be actively voting with our wallets and doing our own research. And the best way to do that is trying to contact your local British Beekeeping Association branch, Bee Farming Association, see who's making honey in your area and just ask if you can buy some. I mean, everyone's going to be um, loving any extra support you can give to beekeepers because making honey is not a cheap business. It's a very difficult business. And that's another reason to be skeptical of a cheap jar of honey. It's not cheap to make unless you're making it really poorly. So Mm. you have to kind of at the moment do your own sort of little bits of research, um, grocers, little corner shops and local produce. That's where you're going to get really good honey and you'll start to realize the sort of range of flavors that are out there. And you can start cooking with it in a way where you might be pairing different honeys with different things. Or you might think, oh, a clover honey is a really great one for spreading on toast because it's got that wonderful creamy consistency. Or like a borage honey is a great UK version of an acacia runny honey. And that's good for drizzling on top of yogurt and soft cheeses. Or you might go for like an oak honey or chestnut honey, a tree honey, um, because it's super dark and you want something really punchy to pop into a cocktail. So you can start thinking like that with it rather than sort of grabbing a jar or something sweet and not thinking. Because honestly, I would recommend buying beet sugar if you want something sweet in your kitchen that's lower price and it's, you know, a super easy, reliable form of sweetener. Whereas if you want good honey, if you want floral flavors, you want something interesting and you actually want to sort of there's, you know, there's no point buying really, really, really bad olive oil and just so that you can buy olive oil there's no point so it's the same with honey like buy what you can afford i'm conscious that everyone's in the middle of a cost of living crisis and i'm certainly not going to start advocating spending 10 pounds on a jar of honey every week but buy what you can afford have a go get interested in it see what you think and then go from there and maybe try and sort of Try and swap from seeing honey as a ubiquitous sweetness to be sweetener to be used every day to a bit more of a treat because it is honestly so difficult to make really good cheap honey that it's um, it's just really sad that we've got to that stage, unfortunately. But we can get past it and hopefully that's what's going on right now. Less but better. Same as meat. Yeah. Um, and we yeah. don't want to make an industry out of it. You know, we don't want to encourage so much consumption that, th- that the beekeepers then have to up their intervention. Because let's talk about intervention, because there is that argument, isn't there? Leave the honey to the bees. Why should mm. we be encouraging beekeeping to produce honey? Well, I think certainly the intensification is a really valid point to talk about in the sense of, like agriculture, 
like a lot of forms of farming, beekeeping was not immune to the intensification of agriculture movement and the industrialization that came in sort of, you know, post-World War when they started bringing in the inorganic fertilizers and that ramped up production, which now obviously we know is super unsustainable. We're trying to scale it back because all of those uh, fertilizer and chemical inputs on the land are having huge knock-on effects on our water systems. And those systems are really unsustainable without really heavy heavy chemicals. Beekeeping, you could could be argued, was quite similar in terms of breeding more bees, loads of bees, as, as many as possible. When actually, I think with good honey, it's it's important not to try and scale it really big because you run into exactly the same issues of trying to meet your own uh, demand for supply. And that's when we start overly blending from multiple apiaries all over the country, different countries, different continents, whereas actually um, scaling it back as small as possible and sort of seeing it as a small batch thing of when it's gone, it's gone. And that was you've, you've captured the season and there's a limited output is a really healthy way to look at it. Honeybees are a uh, bred livestock. They're viewed by DEFRA as farming livestock. And honeybees have been bred for thousands and thousands of years. We, the earliest evidence, I think, that we have of keeping bees as opposed to wild honey hunting is um, ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. So it goes way back. So this is a genetic stock, if you like, that's been bred for thousands of years. So it's a little bit different to think about in terms of the rest of our wild pollinating insects. So those honeybees are already producing excessive quantities of honey because it's what they've been bred to do and it is what they do naturally as well. So it's sort of they are already producing an excess that you can uh, take off as a beekeeper and there are just either more sustainable or less sustainable ways of doing it so more sustainable you give them you you leave them with exactly enough honey and more because obviously they know you don't know exactly you're guessing uh, that they're going to need that they're going to eat through winter into the following spring and then you take off the excess which is considerable it's kilos and kilos of excess so it is completely doable in a sustainable way um, and then the unsustainable way that a lot of um a lot of uh, more disreputable honey producers do. And this is where we get into it's impossible to make good honey cheaply. This is one of the ways that you do it badly is that you take absolutely all of the honey and then you're feeding them with sugar over winter, which is obviously like giving somebody a McDonald's for six months of the year. It's really not nutritional. Um, So there's ways of doing it sustainably. But what I also will say, which is really important, and I know that... um, Sarah Wyndham Lewis and Bermondsey Street Bees are um, very keenly aware of this as well, and they've moved some of their operations out of London, is that beekeeping became so popular in urban cities as a bit of a, like, well, to be honest, a bit of a hipster hobby and a bit of a sort of fun thing for businesses to have on the side as a bit of almost greenwashing, pollinator washing, for the past sort of 10, 15 years. And that's led to... um, loads of honeybees in cities and obviously there are thousands of honeybees inside every single beehive so that has quite an impact on local pollinator um, communities trying to survive because the honeybee is only one of 250 plus species of bee in the UK and the honeybee is the one that lives in the biggest group so it has a really big impact on local ecosystems and then if you're not planting enough 
um, pollinator friendly flowers um, to go for to support those bees and the wild pollinators, then you are creating a really unsustainable situation. So we've, we've sort of come through that curve now. And now we've realized what's going on. Now we're reducing the number of hives in cities to combat this. We're planting more flowering forage, not just green walls, which are green deserts because they don't have many flowering plants on them. Um, and being quite careful about where hives are sited. So for example, I'm a member of the London Beekeepers Association and we were having a talk about this quite recently just to really get into the data and figure out are there too many hives in London that we know about or is it something else? And looking at the distribution maps, it's more at the moment a case of distribution. So there are too many hives in places that don't have enough forage and so they need to be redistributed. But luckily in places like London, um, actually the turnover of new beekeepers and old beekeepers is quite circular in the sense of people are leaving London all the time, they're moving out or they're retiring from beekeeping. So that turnover actually means that it's not increasing exponentially. But what I definitely would say is that, you know, because people say to me, oh, you're a beekeeper, you're saving the bees. And I'm not saving the bees. I'm looking after a bred species of bee and then doing all of my extra work to help support and raise the profile of all the wild pollinators that do need saving. So I think there's an there's an education thing around understanding the different bees out there and what they need and I certainly wouldn't I wouldn't recommend getting into beekeeping as a way of saving the bees or doing your bit get into beekeeping because you really want to make honey and do your best to learn how to create the environment for them like planting more plants and then use it to then learn about the rest of the pollen exactly that's the most important thing isn't it you know create bee friendly gardens and understand about honey terroir and be so eat less but better let's let's talk about some of your food moments i mean i have been salivating over these words cardamom basque cheesecake with orange blossom honey i mean the combination of those words oh my lord tell us about this one so my cardamom basque cheesecake, I almost didn't put a basque cheesecake in the book because they, you know... You wouldn't have got on this show argue they'd be, Well, <laughs> good to know. I'm so glad I did that. Well, you could argue they've been done to death, but they are everywhere. But th- to be fair, that is a, the, with good reason. They're absolutely delicious. And when I was... Um, this one always reminds me of... Uh, where I was when I was testing it because I when I was writing the book I was still working at Kew Gardens and uh, so and I, I was a student there on the Kew Diploma in Horticulture moving around different areas of the garden on a work placement every three months and uh, when I was testing this recipe I was working in Kew's Palm House the big curvy tropical glass house and uh, it's quite surreal because you're working in somewhere where they're growing fresh cardamom in the soil and you know all other because uh, cardamom is a relative in the ginger family. So all over uh, all of the spices growing in the palm house. So you're learning not only about the sort of like colonial history of the movement of spices and how to horticulturally grow them yourself. I was then also downstairs in the secret basement of the palm house, which is where the staff kitchen is for us to hang out on break times, um, cooking, <laughs> cooking up a basque, cardamom bash cheesecake in there. Delightfully cute. It's like a nine. It's a 1970s starlight oven. I, I looked it up and it just looks it looks like the oven out of Wallace and Gromit, the one where they go to the moon with the cheese. It looks like that oven that follows them around for a bit. And I was like, it was all like completely safe from electricity point of view. It was just a really wonderful little retro moment. But um, 
But yeah, and it came out perfectly. And I thought, hang on, this recipe must be okay now. I must have nailed it. If we can cook it in a 1970s oven in the Q Palm House basement, and it still comes out fine with the sunken souffle effect. So um, <laughs> just kind of, I just thought, um, God, I live a bit of a weird life here. <laughs> All but, the different but you know, the cardamom there. cheesecake would have been fine on its own, but it's the orange blossom honey that just completely transforms mm. it. And it's the same as you've done in your second food moment, which is rose roast quince with hazelnut meringue and honeyed mascarpone with apple blossom honey. You, you talk about meringues that you're a bit... I mean, you're a bit of a nerd, let's be honest, Amy. But I mean, in terms of meringues, you are uh, obsessed, aren't you? Yeah, I'm, I'm. Yeah, no, that's exactly the right word to describe me. I'm a complete nerd. I probably, uh, rather than going down this sort of multi-hyphenate career where I get sidetracked by multiple different things at any one moment, I probably should have been an engineer because I just love understanding how things work. And that's kind of what happens. But yeah, my my meringue passion went back to very early childhood earlier than I remember but all of my family remembers this we actually ended up using it as the author bio photo in my book because it's just really funny I think I'm about two or three years old and it's a flash photo taken in a dark dining room because I've been caught red-handed sat on top of the dining table after Christmas dinner when all of the adults are asleep on the sofa and I am uh, sat on the dining table I think I might be sat in the plate of pavlova leftovers <laughs> just eating it with my hands as this little two <laughs> and that's definitely sort of where the pavlova obsession began it was there from the beginning um, and then yeah it just sort of for me pavlovas are your ultimate dramatic dessert they're messy they're slightly fiddly to make but when you get your hang of it they you know they work every time and they just come out of the oven looking absolutely ridiculous and you get to mound them and mound them as high as you can go you know jeremy lee style you can go vertiginous yeah. with it um but for me i like to do anything and everything with them so i'm actually a, a really huge uh, fire cook it's one of my favorite ways to cook mm. and um i love to do like a like a cacao kind of toasted hazelnut meringue something with a stronger flavor um on the barbecue so i'll just uh and I don't mean like fire grilling the meringue because obviously we know they need like a low, slow cook. But um, uh, if I, you just add like, and this is this actually goes really well with the honey pairing that I've mentioned on the Rose Rose Quince meringue recipe in my book, the apple blossom honey. Yeah. I like to use apple wood chips to just very gently smoke that chocolate hazelnut meringue only for a few minutes obviously you don't want an overly smoked dessert but it just adds an extra layer of sort of slight fruity smokiness to the cacao which is absolutely delicious fantastic i love the way that um you kind of burst the way that we normally think about honeys last night i i cooked the um the beetroots in the harissa and honey uh combination um with the raw cavolo nero which is just fantastic and 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 the mm. red peppers beautiful plate um and your third food moment, you do that, you garlic ferment honey with preserved lemon focaccia. Tell us about that one. All of the recipes in the book are paired with a particular kind of honey to really pull out this idea of a honeyed terroir mm. and, and suggest different ways that you can work with honey. But they're very much inspiration points for people to use in Go Off. Um, there's a whole section of the book that describes different flavours of honey. So don't for a second feel that you need to go out and buy that exact type of honey that I've paired it with. It's just an inspirational point to kind of riff off. And I kind of was the victim of my own 
nerdy excitement I guess I would say as when I was looking at all the different things that you can do to honey not that not only that you can use with honey um, and fermenting honeys uh, is a really exciting way to kind of get different flavors into it and really change the chemical makeup of the honey um, a bit you know right the way through to making mead which is the easiest uh, ferment water and honey but if you pull back and do something like a garlic fermented honey, which is where, I mean, it's incredibly simple. I don't, it's not even a recipe. You just peel some cloves of garlic, lightly bash them, mix them with honey, leave it and just leave it for as long as you want, as long as you can dare, because the honey is antimicrobial and the garlic is antibacterial and antimicrobial. So you really can leave that one for absolutely ages. And what happens is that honey is hygroscopic. So it pulls the moisture that was in the garlic clove out and that gives it enough moisture to then start fermenting back. And then you get this. So the sugar content of the honey lowers because it's starting to ferment a little bit. But then you get that crazy garlic flavor coming out into it. But because it's starting to also ferment, it becomes a little bit funky. And then essentially you get this just insane, savory, sweet, garlicky, slightly umami, amazing garlic fermented honey. And that is just so good in so many different savory dishes. I went a bit nuts and paired with it with quite a few things in the book, which considering it's something you've got to make rather than buy, it was a bit left field for me, but it doesn't matter. I got very excited. I think hopefully people will too. But so what I'm, one of my favorite ways of using it is to make this preserved lemon focaccia, which I've done in the book. And it's super simple. The flavors are purely garlic fermented honey, preserved lemons and rosemary. And the, the combination of when you dimple the focaccia, um, as all the bubbles are rising um, and you, you you pop these little sl- jellied slices of briny salty lemony preserved lemon into those dimples and then you puddle a little amount of garlic fermented honey into each of those that little flavor puddle as it were is just oh it blew my mind so I, <laughs> I think everyone should cook that one immediately I was like oh this is great <laughs> It's great. I love that. So we started with the Ottolenghi flavour bombs. Then Gerd Loyal starts talking about flavour chords because he's a musician. And now we've got flavour puddles. Love it. Um, (laughs) Your final food moment is the barbecue season. Uh, You know, that's when honey really comes into its own, isn't it? It's sticky. You've put it with your double plum ribs with Tupelo honey and lime leaf slaw. Come on, tell me about barbecuing with honey. Cooking with honey is a little bit different to cooking with other kinds of sugar because, for instance, honey caramelizes quicker than sugar. So in a baking context, that means that you have to change the timings on the bakes. You have to be a little bit careful. Sometimes you still use a good portion of sugar to the honey ratio for that flavor versus uh, technical baking trade-off. But in things like barbecue and grilling, that quick caramelization you can really use to your advantage. Um, And it's sort of, you can get these wonderful sort of jammy, burnt, bitter, sweet, savory kind of notes into it that come out really easily and and are really fun to do. And so for me, um, American style barbecue, like Deep South barbecue is like a, a childhood love of mine, but from a very, not from a very well informed or particularly authentic background, purely because we had a restaurant near where I grew up in the West Midlands in Sully Hall, which was called Jefferson's. And I think it's now been taken over by a harvester. But it, but it was like an all-American style 
restaurant and it used to do like baby back, baby back ribs and corn on the cobs. And we went a few times when I was quite little and I would sort of play under the table and then sneak a hand up to steal a corn on the cob or something. And I always remember those like really tender um, baby back ribs. And for, so for me, that's a very kind of comfort food for me being able to have those kind of ribs. And when I was recipe testing for the book, I just really wanted to do my own spin on those. Um, and I am often quite fruit led as the, uh, a lot of these food moments show actually, um, in that I just love working with produce that's in season. I just get very excited about what's coming in and whether it's ripe or not. And so actually this was a product of me going around my local grocers and there happened to be some plums and then also, uh, just getting very nerdy in my special ingredient section and discovering umeboshi paste, which is the Japanese salt fermented plum paste which is just this incredible a little bit like the preserved lemon you get that fruitiness that tang but also like a super savory salty hit to it and so I've combined the two of those into this amazing sauce so that's hence it's called a double plum ribs and then it's combined with a tupelo honey which is a deep south american honey and it's made out of a uh, tupelo tree sweet gum which grows in nissa sylvatica i think is the latin name and actually it's a beautiful garden tree and i'd really recommend it for sort of uh, slightly wet soils so with climate change and we get much wetter sort of uh, seasons much wetter winters and springs um it's going to be a great one for us to be growing in our gardens in the uk and it has great autumn color as well but anyway so Tupelo honey is a really amazing specialist honey and it's quite fruity and really golden. And so it's a great one to pair with this. However, again, I'm not suggesting people are going to try and track down Tupelo honey and the food miles that involves bringing that in for over the US. It's a starting point. It's an inspiration point. Use whatever you like. But um, here I've just made this really sticky, really tender very comforting rib recipe and when we shot it for the book it was one of those recipes where you just had a little proud moment as a writer because without asking for permission the whole team just ate it in seconds because they just couldn't wait so we plated it up and then we 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 shot me you know just breaking up the rigs, ribs to illustrate how tender they are. And then just as soon as we called the shot, it just suddenly started disappearing and everyone was just huddled in a little group around the plate. And so 30 seconds later, it was just clean bones on a plate. So we shot that as well because it looked amazing. Um, but yeah, it was one of those moments where you're like, yes, that's a really good one. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Do pop over to Substack for extra bites of Amy and her honeybees. Just search for Julie Smith on Substack. And I'll see you next week. 